have now an object lesson, a practical picture that Ezekiel offers of God's work of restoration, of God's covenant of peace, of the forgiveness that comes through the work of God. Listen as I read Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to begin at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become like one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all, over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or to be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the power of the gospel and pray that the, the picture that Ezekiel gives to us would be one that you would apply to our hearts and lives that we would not merely understand the gospel, but that we would, we would see it work itself out in our attitudes and our actions. Lord, that we would be transformed by the work of your Spirit, and so we come as expectant people, asking you by your Spirit to change us, to make us holy in your sight. Father, we come on this, this Mother's Day, a day in which we, we rejoice in the blessings that you have given to us, of mothers who have loved us and cared for us, Lord, we pray for, for the mothers in our congregation, for birth mothers, who in bravery made plans to, to give their children an, a, a forever family. Lord, we pray for, for foster mothers who care temporarily but deeply with compassion and love for children in need. Lord, we pray for adoptive mothers who have welcomed children as their own to love and to care for, for stepmothers who through the midst of what can be difficult circumstances or broken, broken histories have loved and protected the children that you have given to them. Lord, we today mourn, the, mourn with the mothers who have lost children, who today in sadness remember the brokenness. Lord, for those mothers who, who long for restored relationships with children who have gone astray. 
Lord, we pray for the women who have chosen to to remain childless. Lord, we pray for the women who long for children. Lord, that you would fulfill our our deepest needs and our longings, that we would be blessed by by the ministry of your church. Lord, today we we mourn with those who have lost their own mothers. Lord, we in, in sadness, maybe in fondness, remember their ministry among us. Lord, we pray that you would restore us into into relationship if if our mothers have have turned from us. Lord, that we would see your your grace and your mercy, even in this day, this day of great celebration, this day of remembrance, this day in which we're reminded of the way in which you have blessed us through the the mothers you have given to us. And so, Father in heaven, we come asking you to, to work in our hearts, to apply the gospel to us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Every year on the border between Spain and France, there's a little island in the river that transfers ownership from one country to the other. It, 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 it started back in 1659 when they, the Ile de Faisans, the, the island of pheasants, this little one-and-a-half-acre uninhabited piece of land was the place of a 1659 treaty. The king of France and the king of Spain had been at war against each other. And with their armies camped on, on opposite sides of the river, they built wooden bridges out to the island and negotiated a peace treaty. They determined the borders between the countries. They, they, they transferred captives. They, they, they arranged territories. And they even sealed the, the treaty, the Treaty of the Pyrenees, with a marriage between the king of France and the princess of Spain. But the island on which they negotiated, they determined would be a place, a a perpetual symbol of peace between these countries that would be controlled. It would be part of both countries. And every year, it would transfer back and forth between the countries. And so from February through August, it's Spanish. The rest of the year, it's French as a reminder of of the peace treaty that was signed. And so for more than 350 years, this little island changes countries twice a year. Now, there's no, today there's no fanfare, no ceremony. They actually don't want to provoke the, the regions surrounding it. And so you can't even go visit the island. Yes, you can see the monument from the, the riverbank, but you're not allowed to visit. If you do, the the Spanish police who are responsible for patrolling it this time of year will come and drag you off the island. It's merely a, a reminder from history of what it costs to achieve peace. Ezekiel describes God's plan for peace. Peace between, yes, two nations, the nations of, of Judah and Israel, but God's plan for peace is not demarcated by a border or remembered with with an island, with territory that transfers, God's plan for peace is much more extensive. God's plan for peace goes much deeper because it doesn't merely determine what happens between nations, but it, but it goes into the heart of each one of us. And God's plan for peace will last even longer than the Treaty of the Pyrenees. God's plan for peace also costs much more. And so, we, we, we start with a picture here in Ezekiel 37, a, an object lesson. Ezekiel is told by God to pick up two sticks. It's just the word for wood. 
It's probably not even a shepherd's staff or a, or a king's scepter. He would have used those words, words we've seen him use elsewhere. It's just two pieces of wood. And he's supposed to write on one that this is the stick that belongs to Judah. On the other, he writes, this is the stick that belongs to Ephraim. Ephraim, the, the, the prominent son of Joseph, one of the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's going to carry these sticks around with him until it will provoke the question. Look at verse 18. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? The picture is now a picture of the promise. The promise that God is making that he is going to join these two nations together. Now, I don't think there's anything miraculous or, or supernatural that takes place with these two sticks. I think he's just holding two sticks, two pieces of wood. I don't think they, they fuse together. It's, it's not as if he throws them to the ground and, and they, they transform. No, it's, it's just two sticks with words written on them. But they're words that are meant to point us back toward the covenant of God because commentators point out that both sticks have at least one word, that have, have one description that's the same. Even on the stick that belongs to Judah, the word Israel is written. And all of Israel with Judah. And on the stick that belongs to Ephraim and the whole house of Israel, because Israel, yes, it was the name of the northern kingdom. When the kingdom after Solomon, Solomon David's son, the kingdom was split in two and you had Judah and Israel. But Israel was really the name of the whole kingdom. And so even Judah is connected to that covenant name, the covenant name given to the father of the people. It's a promise. And, and so, so both sticks have that name. And, and when held together in the hand of the prophet, they are a picture of God's promise. And what is the promise? Look at, look at how he's supposed to respond in verse 19. Say to them, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph and join it to Judah's stick. I'm going to make a single stick of wood that will become one in my hand. So the people are supposed to, to look. What's, what's going on here, Ezekiel? You're just whittling away the time? Or, or what have you written in these sticks? And he's supposed to say to them, look at, look at verse 21. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land. On the mountains of Israel, there will be one king over all of them. They will never again be two nations or to be divided into two kingdoms. It's a picture of God's promise, this simple object lesson. A reminder that God is going to do something supernatural. God is going to do something by bringing these people together. Because this is not a, a treaty that could be negotiated by kings. One, there is no king left on the throne of Judah. And, and remember, the kingdom of Israel was destroyed more than a century before the people scattered where would you even find Israelites today? They're, they're, they're scattered around the ancient Assyrian Empire, which has now been taken over by Babylon. And so what God is going to do is something that's more than political. It's more than a, a geographic reuniting of these peoples. We see that in, in the covenant language he uses, that, it's a, that it, this is the, the covenant with Israel, but, but even in the way that it's structured for us. Look at, look at the way that God's covenant promise is, is repeated in verse 23 and 27, where God says, I will save them. And then look at the, verse, at the end of verse 23. They will be my people, and I will be their God. He repeats it. He, he flips the phrases then in verse 27. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The, the promise that God is making is bigger 
than a political promise. It's a covenant promise, a spiritual promise that God is doing for the people. And so let's look at, let's, let's look at the power then of this promise. It's not simply a, a symbol of two nations being brought back together, these sticks being joined as one. Now, God is going to go deeper in this unity. Look at verse 23. God is going to deal with the hearts of the people, not merely the borders of their kingdoms, but with their very lives. Look at verse 23. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their other offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. So God is doing the work in their hearts to make them holy. That's what he says in verse 28. I, the Lord, make Israel holy. God is dealing with their hearts, with their actions. God is going to set them apart and cleanse them. It's a picture here, a picture that we've seen in baptism of the cleansing work of God in bringing forgiveness. It's a picture of God at work in our hearts. It's, it's the way that Ezekiel has been showing us the promises of God. Earlier in the chapter, we, we saw this last week, Ezekiel's taken into a valley filled with dead, dried bones. And what's the picture there that's given to the people? The bones get up and walk. They're brought back to life. God breathes life into them, a picture of God's restoration and rescue for his people. Or, or go back to, to chapter 36, and, and Tom showed this to us a couple of weeks ago. In chapter 36, verse 25, God makes the promise, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's the promise we're hearing again in chapter 37. God is going to do the cleansing work, but what's the image there in chapter 36, verse 26? God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the work that God is going to do is a work of transformation on each person individually so that we turn from our sin, from our idols, from the images that we have placed in our lives and our homes and said, this is the thing that I need most. And so, so when Ezekiel brings us to this place of peace, we don't, we don't cross our, our bridges and sit down at the negotiating table from a position of power. We can't say to, the, to, the, to God on the other side of the negotiations, look at my armies. If you don't do what I want, these armies will march across this little river and crush you. And remember the ways in which I've crushed you before. No. No, when you and I come to this negotiating table and we look behind us, what do we see? Our idolatry. The things in our life that we have said, God, I, I want this more than I want you. Whether it's power or pleasure or possessions, we've said this is the thing that I have. We see our, our vile images, our offenses, our sinful backsliding, our rebellion against God. That's what we bring to this negotiating table. God has armies behind him. He has holiness behind him, righteousness behind him. And so when you and I come to this negotiation, when you and I come desperate for peace, all of your sins will be exposed. Your heart exposed. But God is serious in dealing with our sins. He makes the promise, they will be my people. I will be their God. I will cleanse them. God is going to do the work when you put your trust in him of changing your life. 
Which means, if you, if you put your trust in God, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then you should expect things to change. You should actually expect God to say, all right, I don't want just that idol and that idol. I want the one that you're still holding on to. I want that thing that you say, well, you can have any of those, but this, this one's mine. This one's mine. No, no, God is, God is going to work to, to rip it from your hands. It means if you are a, a follower of Christ, you need to be serious about your sin. God is serious about cleansing you, transforming you, changing you, and so you need to be serious about it, to acknowledge your sinfulness before God. See, when you come to this table and you realize that God at this negotiation is going to give you peace when you deserve none, when you, when you have nothing, no, no, no leverage to negotiate with, but God forgives you and cleanses you, then you should get up from this table and think, that, that was a miracle. I, I, I wasn't destroyed or slaughtered or enslaved, but I was forgiven. And that forgiveness then can transform you to be as serious with your sin as God is, to ask God to cleanse you, to transform you. And that's why when, when we witness the baptism of another, you and I are reminded of the seriousness of dealing with our own hearts, of the sin that lurks within us, of asking God, God, cleanse even those parts of my life that I don't want anyone else to know about. You and I need to be serious because we see the power of God's promise. God is going to bring unity by, by personal transformation in us. But, but as, the, as the chapter continues, as, as this image of the, these two sticks being joined in unity continues, we see the, the permanence of the promise. The, the, the first part of what I read to you, the, the key word would be one. Over and over again, there's this the emphasis on unity. But the key word that flows in, in what, what continues in the chapter is forever. If we ask, how long will this peace last? Forever. I mean, I mean notice the way in which God makes these promises known. He, he says that his servant David will be king over them. He will be their one shepherd. God will transform their hearts so that they can follow my laws and decrees. And now look at verse 25. They'll live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. On Mother's Day, this is, a, this is one of those powerful promises that your children and your children's children are those upon whom God's blessings flow. And so there's power in mothers who pray for their children, who announce the gospel to their children, that God's promises extend to children and their children after them. And how long will this last? How long will they inhabit this land, this promised kingdom that God gives? Forever. We're told again at the verse, end of verse 25, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. That's the, the promise that was given way back in, in the book of 2 Samuel, hundreds of years before. In 2 Samuel 7, when, when David was the king on the throne, Nathan was sent to him with this promise. This promise that the kingdom of David would last forever. Now, kings in Israel was a fairly new phenomenon. The last kingdom didn't make it even from father to son. And now God comes and makes the promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read in, in verse, verse 12, 
where God says that, that God says, I will establish David's kingdom. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for, him, for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. God speaks to David, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. How long does this kingdom last? Forever. And yet, the people in Ezekiel may have thought, well, but, but God, by forever you mean like it ended a few months ago. Because remember, this son of David has been taken from the throne. And so it, we had a good long run, lasted several hundred years, but, but when God meant forever, he just meant sort of a long time from now. And then it would come to an end, and we're here, the people in the time of Ezekiel, at the end. And so God's promise can't mean forever. For there is no king on the throne. But God's promise, he says to this people, to the people of the exile, my promise lasts forever. God is telling them, I'm making with you, look at verse 26, a covenant of peace. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see, the people of the exile need the promise to be reiterated. The promise to David was a promise forever. God says to the people in exile, my promise lasts forever. God says to us, this covenant of peace, this everlasting covenant, is a covenant I am making with you forever. But how does God do it? It's not merely by, by walking across the bridges to sign a treaty on a, on a little island. No, how does he do it? He's, he says, I'm going to make my covenant of peace with them forever. And then verse 26, I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. See, God says, I will come and dwell with you. God doesn't merely show up to, to sign his name on a treaty. God sent his son to a cross for this covenant. See, Jesus dwells among us. Jesus, the Son of God, the sanctuary of God, the temple of God is with us, his people. He came to give his life. See, there is no committee on peace that you could, you could, you could draw up. There are no representatives that you could even find of the people of Israel. There is, there is no negotiation possible here without God's direct divine intervention, without God himself saying, I will make the covenant of peace last forever. But it means when we hear the announcement of what God has done through Jesus, then you and I have to admit your total dependence upon God. As one who has come with nothing but your sins to lay out on the negotiation table, then you, then you recognize, I have nothing to offer. I need your grace and your mercy. I am completely dependent upon your intervention, you keeping this covenant of peace. So we've seen the power and the permanence of this promise, but, but notice that it doesn't stop there. 
It doesn't even stop with the, the, the two sticks being joined together, the, these two nations of, of Israel and Judah, the, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who was named Israel. It doesn't simply stop with them being united into one kingdom. No, God has a bigger plan. He's always had a bigger plan. Even to the promise made to Abraham himself was that this blessing of your descendants will be a blessing for all the nations. See, sometimes when we hear the gospel, and, and when, when we first hear it, and you hear it announced, you are a sinner who has rebelled against God, an idolater, who has turned your back on God, filled your life with, with evil and pollution and hatred. Repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and now put your trust in God and he will forgive you. We think, well, that's the end of the story. God did that work in me. But it's not meant to be the end of the story because God's work in you is a work that is meant to be seen and noticed and heard by others. Because look at, look at the very next, the last verse of this chapter where God says in verse 27, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now the last verse, verse 28, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make them holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. See, the, the salvation of the people of God was a picture for the nations to hear the gospel. It's the, the work of, of God. The, the work of Jesus in your life was never meant to end with you. It was always meant to be sent. You were always meant to be one who was sent with this gospel so that others would hear. See, Jesus' work of, as the, the one true shepherd, the, the true servant who will reign as the king, is the work that was meant to spread even to the nations. If, if you flip with me to the Gospel of John, we actually looked at this a few weeks ago, John chapter 10, when we saw the, the image in, in Ezekiel 34 of, of, of the God promising to send his shepherd. And in John chapter 10, we saw that Jesus stands and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now look, look with me in John chapter 10. So this is the gospel, the ministry of Jesus himself, the good shepherd. And look at verse 14 of John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He is the good shepherd of the people of Israel, gathering his sheep from that sheep pen labeled Israel. But what does he say? I have sheep in other pens, the pens of the nations. I will call them. They will hear my voice. That's the ministry of the good shepherd Jesus. But, but, but we, we also see that the, the work of unity in Ezekiel chapter 37, is always meant to show itself to the nations. So, so flip, we're in, we were just in John 10. Go to John 17. We have Jesus on the night of his betrayal and arrest praying that God would strengthen him to bring to, to completion the work of salvation that comes at the cross. He prays for his disciples, but, but he prays even more than that for us, the church, that our unity the, the connection we have to Christ in the gospel, our unity would be for the world to see. Listen, listen to Jesus' prayer. John 17, starting at verse 20. Jesus says, My prayer is not, not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me 
through the apostolic message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity. So that's, that's the, the prayer. That's the promise, the, the picture of Ezekiel 37, being brought to complete unity. But look at verse 23 again. Why? May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved, me, loved them even as you have loved me. See, the unity in the people of God, in Israel, in the church gathered from the nations, is a unity that is supposed to show the world the truth of the gospel, that the world may know the gospel. Or as Ezekiel says, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, their God, make Israel holy. And so the gospel was never meant to end with you. The gospel was always meant to go through you to, to someone else. So, so who? Who this week do you need to tell? Maybe it's the person who shares a cubicle with you, whose desk is next to you, or, or who stands next to you at, 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 your, at your practice and, and stretches while you're warming up for the game. Who is it that needs to hear this gospel message from you? Because you are the one sent with the message. The God is the God who pulls his people from the nations, rescuing them, making an eternal covenant, a lasting covenant of peace, an eternal promise. And then you and I have the privilege of making that gospel known, of announcing the covenant promises of God. When God says, I will cleanse them, they will be my people, I will be their God. When God says, my dwelling place will be with them, my sanctuary among them forever, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Let me pray that God would apply these truths to our lives. Father in heaven, I admit my heart is slow to trust your word. Lord, that I am hesitant to see the, the seriousness which, with which you take my sin. Even seeing the great cost of the cross and the death of Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that, that in my heart you would expose my sin. Lord, that you would help me to turn from sin and follow you. Lord, do that work in those who have listened to your word. May your spirit be active. May your promises ring true. That your word will not return to you void, but you will accomplish through it the transforming work of cleansing us. Father, we rejoice in this day, having seen pictures of your grace, pictures in baptism, pictures in, in the, 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 the children who have come to profess their faith in you and make that public. Lord, let us be public with our faith that others would hear the gospel, they, they would respond to the truth of your grace and your mercy. And so, Lord, we, we lift high the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, the King who will reign forever, and so we rejoice in this everlasting covenant of peace, this eternal promise. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.